Amen. All right, good morning, City Church. It's good to have you all here with us today. We are going to be jumping into week two of Prophecy. Uh, before we do that, I uh, just want to take a moment and myself just say uh, to Julian, congratulations, man. Uh, I, Proverbs eleven twenty two. I was thinking about this, says that like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. And in our world right now, uh, we have two really high-profile marriages that are falling apart. We have Will Smith and Jada, and then we have uh, Amber and Johnny, and they're on this public display, and everyone's talking about it. And I think that it's really important for young men and for young women to, to, to understand their own value, to strive for excellence in their own lives, and let me tell you something, this goes for the ladies and the men, if you are single, do not compromise. Do not think that, okay, well, I like this part of them, but this other part we'll figure out. That is not good, sound advice for your life. And anyone that would say something to you like that, like, well, we'll get it sorted later, is they don't know what they're talking about. They haven't lived enough life. You need to make sure that you are striving for excellence in your life. And then when you, are, when you meet somebody and you're in pursuit of them and you want to marry them, make sure that they are as well. It is not something that typically happens on the other side of I do. And uh, so congratulations, Julian. Uh, and I just say, like, this is the type of thing. Like, he was noticed because he's putting his best forward every single day. And this is what it looks like to be a child of God is to try hard and do our best and love the Lord and not have compromise. Uh, and so I just, I'm encouraged by this and I want you to be encouraged in your lives. So one more time, guys, give it up for Julian. And that scripture is not a slam on uh, women. It is just a slam on ungodly people. All right, uh, if you love the Lord, it is not applicable to you. So, all right, we are going to be in week two of prophecy. And I am like, I'm, I'm, every week, I've, I've spent a year preparing for this. And, and now, like every day leading up to these weeks, I'm just torn over like what information to cover and how to cover it. And so uh, I'm really pumped to be able to bring the word to you today. Uh, go ahead and stand to your feet. We're going to begin uh, by reading through Psalm 82. And I think that if there's, if there's one thing, if you walk away with nothing else, and I think there's a lot to walk away from in this series, but if you walk away with nothing else, okay, I want you to walk away with the, with the understanding, okay, that it's not a debate, but the understanding that anything that's prophetic yet to come is anchored in that which was prophetic in the past, even fulfilled. The, the, the New Testament writers are completely in a position where they believe the Old Testament, they believe the Old Testament writings, they are inundated in it. So when they are writing, they are writing out of a place where they see fulfillment of Old Testament things coming to pass in their lives and some things coming to pass yet to come. So Psalm 82 uh, here in verse 1. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. He holds judgment. Verse 2, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. 
Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are, sh are shaken. I said you are God's. Sons of the Most High, all of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Let's pray. Father, we love you. I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is double-edged, speaking truth to every nation, every people, and every time. Lord, today as we are diving into the Word, I pray that it would just do that. It would pierce through our own uh, presumptions, our, the, the misinformation or disinformation that has been presented to us in our lives, that, Lord, truth would reign supreme through the teaching of your Word today. Lord, uh, we love you and praise you. Have your way in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. So we are talking about a supernatural world, and this is fundamental to the concept of prophecy. It is fundamental to the concept of the return of Christ, the eternal kingdom, His eternal reign. Can I just go ahead and just lay this out? A supernatural world is fundamental to the Christian faith. And I fully believe that the reason that the church gets into the position it gets into is because the church becomes guilty of what I, I would call kind of supernatural selection. We, we look at the scripture and we go, well, I'll believe that in this supernatural work, but there's got to be a different explanation for this. I don't receive this supernatural work. And, and I think that that creates a logical fallacy when we are trying to present the gospel that we pick and choose what we believe is a miracle and what we think might just be misinterpretation. Now, prophecy is part of the supernatural world. That is, that, is a, that is full stop. There's no debate around it. If it is a prophecy, meaning that it is yet to come, then supernaturally it has been revealed to us. It is not because we sat down and we added up all the numbers in the world and we said, oh, well, based on that math equation, we know what's going to happen. No, prophecy is that which is yet to come and we can't explain how it is that it's going to happen, but we understand that it was given to us divinely. Now, the authors of the New Testament, they were predisposed to a supernatural worldview. They were not individuals that did not believe in the supernatural. You've got to remember that, that just, the, just the disciples alone following Christ around saw miracle after miracle. In fact, the New Testament tells us that so many miracles took place that they could not contain all of them in the pages that were given to us, right? So there were miracles that happened that we were not even aware of in the writings. So they were predisposed. They believed in a supernatural world. That's why they were looking for the Messiah. And then they lived in a supernatural world when they saw demons cast out, when they saw supernatural miracles take place, when they saw the dead raised. And supernatural just means that it is beyond the natural. I can't duplicate it on my own. It requires some external outside force to make it happen. So last week we were looking through the first little bit of Revelation and we kind of got into this place of the trumpets, right? And we got to the seventh trumpet and we, I, I laid out this, this kind of 
like picture of what the world will look like right before we step into this, this position of the apocalypse and the day of the Lord and, and the eternal kingdom being set up. And before we can answer the question, what's next, right? What, what, what comes after the day of the Lord, right? The culmination of the final rebellion. I, I decided that uh, we might want to walk backwards a little bit. All right, so before we dive into more of Revelation, I want to go backwards into some of the scriptures, into the Old Testament, and I want to take a look at what, are the, what were the other rebellions, right? So we, we, we talk regularly, frequently about the, um, uh, the coming of Christ, right? The coming of the Messiah, and, and, and we talk about that in such a way that like there's this great rebellion and God's going to, you know, Jesus is going to show up and he's going to take dominion and he's going to squash this rebellion. But this is not the first rebellion that the world has experienced, okay? Uh, let's go back and take a look at rebellion number one. Rebellion number one, Genesis chapter one, verse two, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So we get this picture of chaos in the world, okay, that the world has no form and God begins this part that we call creation. And what he does is he creates order out of chaos. And this is God's, this is God's very nature is to take chaos, that which is a mess, and bring it into order. Give it purpose, give it function, right? And we think about purpose meaning that it has a direction that it should be going. It has a way that it should be existing, okay? And in the midst of all of that, he looks at it and he says that it's good. And he says that it's good seven times, right? So he thinks that this order that he has created out of chaos is better than what was there. It's good. In fact, it's really good. And then we get to Genesis chapter 3. Adam is on the scene. Eve is on the scene. Verse 1, it says that now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So who is this serpent, right? This is our introduction. And, and, and I, I referenced a series that we did a couple of years ago last week where we talked about who Satan was and that that's not really his name. I want to take a look at this for a moment because we're introduced to this character, this individual, this being that's in the garden, and it is a serpent. Now, this word here in the, in the Hebrew, remember the Old Testament written in Hebrew, New Testament is written in Greek. This idea of a serpent, right, it translates out to be snake consistently within the language. Its root word is uh, this nashash, and it is to divine, to enchant, to hiss, to diligently observe, to whisper a spell. What, what is not being communicated in Genesis 3 by the author is the picture of like a cobra or a rattlesnake in the garden. There is, an, there is an understanding within the Hebrew language that you understand this is, this, is, this is somebody with a split tongue. This is somebody that has the ability to speak in a way that, that kind of, it, it can consume an individual. It is a word that is used for divinity, all right? 
Now, we, we get this picture of a serpent, right? And then we get to the end of the chapter, verse 24, and it says that after they have sinned, after they have received judgment, that God drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So they were put out of Eden. So we have a picture of this serpent, some type of divine being, and then we see that another divine being is set to guard this, this garden, to guard the tree so that there's not just regular access that's being given to it, okay? Now, Isaiah, Isaiah, and I mentioned this last week, Isaiah is the one that receives this revelation that God is coming in the flesh, right? We see Genesis 3 that God says, hey, my, there will be one who comes through your bloodline, Eve, that will step on the head of the serpent and crush him. He will bite his heel. This part of the prophecy is out there. Isaiah brings some, some, some additional insight that God's coming in the flesh. Now, Isaiah has an encounter where he goes into the throne room of God, and while he is there, he sees some interesting things. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 2, above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now, the reason I want to kind of move forward to this is that because we get this picture of a serpent and this cherubim in Genesis 3, we come to Isaiah, and Isaiah sees this seraphim, and he also sees cherubim. The word seraphim here, all right, when we're looking at this in the, in the Hebrew, it is a fiery or poisonous snake. Fiery meaning that when you are bit by a poisonous snake, you feel this burning sensation as the poison begins to, to get into your bloodstream, as it begins to consume you, as it begins to make an attempt to take your life. So there is a, this, this seraphim that he sees in the throne room of God is that of a snake. So it would not be uncommon in the perspective of those of the time that if Eden is a place where God's uh, uh, spiritual creation is overlapping with his natural creation, that we would see seraphim and cherubim to be present in this area. And so this word seraphim is translated as snake eight different times in the Old Testament. So the Hebrew language uses this language, right, this idea of a snake being the seraphim of a snake in the garden as being this divine one, this one that casts spells, okay? So the host of heaven, the seraphim and the cherubim are the ones that are surrounding the angels at the birth of Jesus as well. We see this language brought forward. So what is it that is significant? I think that the thing that's significant for us to understand is that the initial rebellion, though his name is not Satan, though his name is not Lucifer, in fact, we do not know this seraphim's name, the initial rebellion came from a being that existed in the inner courts or in the inner circles of where God was dwelling. And it says here, going back to verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Another thing to really kind of get today, I, wanna, I hope that you'll get a hold of, is that 
a lot of scholars, a lot of academics today, and, and I, want, let me make, I want to pause and just say this real quick, uh, because uh, this really became apparent to me in, in prepping for this. Uh, the, the concepts that I'm trying to present today, right, these are not the concepts that come from like fringe pastors that are out teaching. These concepts are coming from scholars and academics that work in some of the most prestigious schools in our world, uh, some of the, the, the most uh, uh, elite places where academics who are believers are trying to study archaeology, they're diving into uh, the, you know, looking at the actual manuscripts and transcripts that we have access to. And, and these, these concepts are widely accepted on an academic level. There is, and I do not know why, but there is a disconnect between the academic level and what is happening in our pulpits. And I, I really equated it in a conversation last night, it just kind of came to me, that it's a lot like what, what we see that happens with... Uh, in, in, in the entertainment industry, right? We will have source material from a book or a series of books that was written maybe a hundred years ago, and then all of a sudden they want to make that into a TV show, they want to make that into a movie or a cartoon, and, and you, you watch it and you think to yourself, did you not look at the source material before you made this, right? Like, like, it's, like, it's, like, it's, like a little, it's like we got the title right, and we pulled a few names, but we've just kind of changed a lot about it so that it kind of works better for our storytelling. And unfortunately, that is the nature of what is uh, of the content that's being produced within the church today. Uh, a lot of pastors are writing books, and, and, and some of them can add value to your lives, but there is a disconnect between the source material and what academics are compiling and making available and what's being presented to people. And so my goal in this is to really try to pull from people who are uh, who, who are de have degrees beyond mine that are working inside of these fields and trying to help us gain some understanding and bring it to a level that makes a little bit more sense. Okay, uh, so I'm not trying to go out on this like fringe circle. I have my own fringe ideas sometimes, but I I, I really try to acknowledge when they are fringe ideas. And then what is stuff that we can go and look at that academically we would say, okay, this makes a lot of sense. So this, this picture here in Genesis 3, I, I, my whole life it's always been presented to me that like the serpent showed up with this intent to deceive uh, Eve. But really if we go and we want to look at the structure of this text, and we want to look at it from a position of just taking it for what it says. It does not communicate that. In fact, probably what was happening is that, the, that, this, that this serpent was stepping into a place of rebellion in the moment. We were actively watching it happen. This picture of being crafty, okay, uh, that's right here in uh, verse 1 is the word cunning, all right? That is found eight other times in the Old Testament, and every other time that it's used, it's used as a positive. They were a cunning person, very smart, very intelligent. We come and we look at this and we go, well, because he's a bad guy, this was a bad quality. But the author is probably not communicating that. 
is probably looking at this craftiness, this cunning as being a position of intelligence and speaking to how knowledge, right, can in itself create problems for even those that are spiritual beings. So the question kind of births out of this, why is it that the serpent is allowed in the garden, right? If, if, if you're God and you're all-knowing and you're all-powerful and you've got this serpent that you know has the, the potential to rebel, why allow him in the garden? Well, I think that the same question then could be asked about Adam or Eve because they have the potential, right? Why allow them in the garden? Why allow any of us into his creation, into his place of existence, and it's something less about malice and more about nature, that God is willing to give us the opportunity. He's willing to allow us that moment, that, that life around Him. In fact, it's the way that He created us. And so, the, the, the rebellion here that we have is a rebellion of stepping out of their creative role, their created role. So, um, we have creation, right? And this creates order. And then we have this resistance, this rebellion that takes place. And this rebellion tries to undo order. And I, I don't even know that I would make the argument that it attempts to undo order. Whatever it is that's taking place in the hearts and minds of these individuals, all right, I don't want to assign malice there. What it does create is chaos, okay? Whether it intended to create chaos or not, it creates chaos. And, and this, is, this is what I think the new, I mean, the, uh, the, uh, the author here is trying to help us understand is that God is, has an order, a way that things function, and that in the attempt to make changes, it undoes the order, right? And, and so, different people could come in and say, well, you know, God's desire for us to live a certain way is selfish, right? Because why can't we do the things that we want to do? problem is that when we do things the way that we want to, right, we do not create more order, we create chaos. And so it is not selfish of God to want to maintain order because that order is required for life. Chaos is required for death. And so it's actually not selfish, but it is loving for God to say, no, it can't be that way. This is fundamental, I think, to every society that has existed on the earth from the time of Adam and Eve, that, that there is this, this tear within the culture that wants to look at the God of Scripture and say, I don't want anything to do with this quote-unquote selfish God because I want things to be my way. And God's response is not ever, I don't want you to have things your way. God's response is, when you do things your way, there are consequences. 
right? It's like I can want all day long to take my vehicle and run it on water because it's cheaper than gasoline, but I can complain all I want to the manufacturer after I have dumped water into the gas tank. It's not going to change the fact that it is not designed to run on water. And, and, and this, is, this, is the, this is why I will argue, and we're going to get into these other rebellions, but this is why I think it is so dangerous that we are in a post-truth world. Post-truth meaning that I do not have to accept your truth. I do not have to accept your reality. And the problem that we've got right now is we have got vehicles lining the side of the road. Some of them have put water in the gas tank. Some of them have dumped sugar in the gas tank. Some of them went and bought some really nice rum and poured it in, and it's still not working the way that it's supposed to work. And there is this mindset that refuses to accept the order. And the order is not an order of, uh, of this, like, this like bringing the hammer down by God. It is just a reality that you were designed and created this way. And so we come to the first rebellion. And what happens? They lose access to the tree of life. They lose access to this, this communion with God. Why is it? It's not out of uh, it's not out of this position of like, well, I'm going to teach you a lesson, right? right? The curse that they end up under is a result of what they have created, right? Think about the analogy. When I dump water into my gas tank and I begin to try to run it, it's not, sometimes it's not as simple as dropping the, the fuel tank and pulling all the water out and putting gas in. If you've gotten it up into the engine, you may have to do a full teardown. You can have rust that develops because of it. So there are a lot of issues. And, and what's happening is God says, okay, it no longer works the way it was supposed to work. And so you can't stay in this place and that brings us to the end of this, this first rebellion. And Adam and Eve now are left having to bear the consequences forward. They're having to present this new world to their kids, to their grandchildren. And we wind up at rebellion number two. Rebellion number two, Genesis chapter 6, verse 1, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of, of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, I want to propose, and this is a proposition that right here in verse 5, the picture that we're getting is that every thought, every intention was evil. And I don't know that we have any evidence to suggest that 
Noah was exempt from that. And this is what's so incredible in this idea, is that even if every intention and every thought that you have is evil, when God reveals Himself to you, if you will respond, you will be found righteous. So powerful to think about it, to think about a world that had, had turned its back on its Creator. And God shows up to Noah and He reveals Himself. Now, this is one of those moments where we step into selective supernatural faith. And we have church fathers that have led the church in many great ways that have come up with reasons why this text is misunderstood or misrepresented by its natural reading. The problem is that when we look at the entirety of Scripture, right, that to look at Genesis 6 here as being anything other than a supernatural work in the world kind of comes in contradiction with other portions of Scripture. Some of God's creation continues to refuse to live as they were designed, and because of that, we end up in the second rebellion. Who, who is it that we're talking about here? Genesis 6, verse 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. So I want to look at a few key terms here. The sons of God, they are spiritual beings. How do we know that? Well, first of all, when we're looking at this, There is this uh, term used for them that you're probably familiar with. And it's Elohim. Now, most of us would go, well, that's, that's a name for God. Capital E, Elohim, is in the Scripture a name for God. But there is a small variance in the Hebrew when we come to the use of this term, and it breaks down to just be a disembodied spiritual being. There's no way for us to give some like specific image of what they look like. We just know that they are seen as spiritual beings. And we know this because it is used in that terminology multiple times throughout Scripture. Let's go to Job 1. Uh, We'll focus in Job for a moment. Verse 6, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came Uh, among them, right? So you're familiar with the story of Job. We tell the story. Satan comes to the presence of God, right? He wants to ask for permission to tempt Job, right? Because he believes that he can make Job turn his back on God. But who is he with? He comes with the sons of God, right? Go to chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came along. Job 38, verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk or what laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So they were present at creation. These these Elohim, these 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 spiritual beings, 
And God refers to them as his sons, right? He considers them to be family. Now, I reiterate that these sons of God are spiritual beings, but what is it that they are doing when we get to Genesis 6? And see, this is the, the part that becomes kind of the debate, is that if we don't want to accept the supernatural, right, which really becomes odd that we want to accept the supernatural virgin birth but, and the supernatural resurrection, but we don't want to accept the supernatural of the Old Testament, then we begin to make all of these excuses about, well, this is what it was talking about. But again, looking at it in light of, un, of how other authors of Scripture understood it, I think that we can, we can get a good grip here. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept, under, to be kept until the judgment. So Peter writes, and he, he talks about these angels, these right? Spiritual beings. Now, the cherubim, the seraphim, all these different ones, the angels, the angels are messengers. So, there's some type of hierarchy within these spiritual beings, and that's why we're given the names. So, we have all these spiritual beings that exist, all right? They have different roles, different purposes. The angels are the messengers among them, right? And it says that he did not spare the messengers when they sinned, but instead he cast them into chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So Peter says there was some moment when these spiritual beings were in some type of sin. They had to pay the price for their sin. There is, and he didn't spare the world in the midst of this either, right? So the world had to bear some type of consequence for it. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. And I'm going to just jump down because I have a lot of information to verse 10. I really try not to do this for the purpose of context, but I want you to see some of these verses. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, bold and willful. They do not tremble as, the, as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. So Peter believes sex was involved in this. He's making an argument about the judgment of God coming on a group of people. Why? Because of some type of sexual sin in their lives. And he gives a couple of case studies, and then he breaks it down to how even in the modern age, there are those who refuse to serve God. Instead, they're given over to their sensual ways, their adulterous lifestyles, and they curse God because they want they want it to be how they want it to be. And they don't accept that that lifestyle creates chaos. It steps outside of the order of things. And look here at this word. I mentioned it last week. I want to dive into it for a moment. He says, but he cast them into hell. 
This is interesting because we have a couple of different names for hell in the New Testament that the authors use. This is the only time that we see this word uh, Tartarosus used, um, Tartarus, and it is to incarcerate in eternal punishment is the, is the, is the meaning behind the term. The, the only other place that we find this word is in Greek mythology. And it's specifically about where the titans, the giants, right, the demigods, that they were put into this prison called Tartarus. So Paul, I mean, Peter is, is, is he's an educated man, right? He, he's not a fool. He knows what it is that people believe, and he's making some type of connection between the Greek mythology that so many of these people were hearing and receiving and the story of Noah. And so what is it that he's doing is, is he's, I, I, I believe that what he's doing is he's saying, listen, you've gotten some misinformation, right? A twisting of truth. So this is what you've heard. Let me bring you some clarity, right? That there is a group of beings, these angels who, who stepped out of the order, the way that they were created to live. And instead they created chaos, right? And God had to flood the world. He had to reset things. And when he reset these things, these beings were put into a place, chains of gloomy darkness. Now, these details are not in the Genesis 6 account. So where did they come from? Well, just like Peter would have been familiar with Greek mythology, right? He would have also been familiar with the belief systems of other people. And the Mesopotamians, they had an entire narrative, an uh, uh, entire flood narrative themselves. Now, you hear this all the time, right, from people. They say, well, you know, the flood, I don't really buy that because all these old religions have a flood narrative, right? A lot of old religions, they do have a flood narrative. But there is something that is kind of unique about the Genesis 6 account of the flood and then the, uh, the other uh, flood story that is equally as old, and that is the one of the Mesopotamians. And that is that they both are telling the same story, but swapping who the heroes and villains are. So the Mesopotamian story says that the god Marduk looked down and saw that the people did not, uh, he had gained knowledge that he did not want them to have, and so he was going to flood the earth, and that the Apkula, who are called the Watchers uh, in the Mesopotamian uh, translation, that they stood up and that they are the heroes because they tried to defend humanity. Now, if you watched the uh, Noah movie uh, with Russell Crowe that came out like 10 years ago, this was infused hardcore into that narrative. These watchers, they're the good guys. They were trying to protect humanity, right? But when we're in the Genesis 6 narrative, these individuals that the Jews called the watchers, right, they were actually these sons of God. And Peter says that they had stepped out of their place and had created chaos, that evil had become rampant. And so, being familiar with both stories, you see that these are two stories that are targeting each other. Genesis 6 is saying, look, you might have heard the, the Mesopotamian version, but I'm telling you that is not what happened. 
And the Mesopotamian story is saying, well, you've probably heard about the, the, the version that their Yahweh talks about, but that is not what happened. Jude, who is the, the brother of Jesus, writes in Jude 1, 6, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Last week, we talked about the trumpets, right? The seals that are being broken, and it talks about some type of prison being opened. Scholars believe that the, that the day of judgment, the day of the Lord, somewhere in there that these beings are released from this prison. And what they do, how they operate, I don't know, but it is supernatural. Like, I, I, I want you to, because immediately we go, well, I, I don't know that I would believe that we would see some type of being show up on earth, right? Some type of uh, angelic being, right? But yet what we see in Scripture is that the entire word is around supernatural events. And they don't just happen in the, in the spans of each individual life, right? I mean, the, the distance between uh, Rebellion 1 and Rebellion 2 based on the genealogies is uh, six, over 1,600 years. You have a span of 1,600 years between the two of these. And so, what is the rebellion? Why is this a rebellion? It is a rebellion because they are stepping out of their created role. Humanity got to a place where it did not want to live as it was created. Again, this is, this is about order. This is about God saying, like, you can go and play basketball on the interstate, but there are likely going to be some consequences when an 18-wheeler comes barreling down the road, right? So it's not an act of restriction or hate you know, that God has, it's an act of love saying, you aren't designed this way. I'm trying to help you have fullness of life, and you don't really need to be aware of these things. This is part of the argument that we have as parents, right? There are just things my kids don't need to be wrestling with, right? Right? Uh, my, my kids don't need to be wrestling with some of the things that the world around them is trying to tell them that they need to be wrestling with. And, and one of those is you know, gender and sexuality. Like my 10-year-old, that's my youngest. Maybe you've got a younger one. Like that's just not a, my, my kids want to play Minecraft and Pokemon and they want to watch cartoons. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, like let them have some form of a childhood that doesn't kind of create this chaos in their own minds and in their own hearts. And so God looks at us and He says, look, I made you this way. You don't have to be aware of all of this like chaos over here. I created you for order, right? And all the way back in the first rebellion, what did they do? They said, well, we want more than order. We want to get a little bit of what's on the outside. And then all of a sudden we get to, to 1,600 plus years later, and what are they doing? Like, eh, you know, we, we, we don't want what God has. We want everything. And God's going, you don't have to be dealing with this stuff. There is a better way to live. And then we get to the third rebellion, the third rebellion, and this is the Tower of Babel. So, 
The Dead Sea Scrolls make these references uh, in them about Gilgamesh. And uh, Gilgamesh is uh, said to have founded Uruk. Nimrod is uh, the Hebrew transliteration of this and had founded what is called Uruk in the Scripture. Why does this matter? Well, Nimrod is the one that comes down and convinces the people who are still living in fear of a post-flood world, okay? And so we're talking about now 700 years. And so you have people who have lived their entire span of their lives, never having seen a flood, but because granddad told them about the flood, they continue to live in high elevation, right? They continue to be afraid of going down into the valley Nimrod, you know, the, the story goes, uh, to, according to Jewish tradition, he convinces them that it's okay to come down, and he begins to unify them. Genesis chapter 11, verse 4, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built, and the Lord said, behold, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now, you read this story like this, and you think to yourselves, like, okay, so God got upset that they were, you know, rallying together, that they were using their, their, their might together. Well, there's actually a lot more that's going on inside of this, uh, and we get that by what we find in other parts of the text. So what, are, uh, what other details are there surrounding this story? Well, Deuteronomy 32 gives us a really interesting little nugget here in verse 8. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when He divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. So the sons of God show up here again in Deuteronomy 32, right? And what does he say? He says, when the time came and he divided the people, when did that happen? That happened at the third rebellion. Why was it a rebellion? Because God had told them to disperse and populate the earth. That was why it was rebellion. The best way for them to live was to disperse and populate the earth. Instead, they came together and they wanted to build a tower so that they could go and see God, right? That they would be able to be like God. It's the same imagery. It's not enough, right? Now, none of us think that they built a really tall building because God is sitting on a cloud up there and we might be able to find the cloud, right? Like We, we, we understand this concept. What we don't understand is exactly what it was that this tower was. What was it that they were building? What, did it, what was its purpose exactly? But we know that it was in rebellion because what did God do? God came, He brought judgment, and He divided them by tongue and by nation. And it says here that when He did that and He fixed the borders, He put them into nations regarding or, or equal to the number of the sons of God. So however many of these spiritual beings are still in communion and relationship with him, he says, that's how many nations there will be. And, and since you do not want to do the things that I'm asking you to do repeatedly, right, I'm going to remove myself from the equation and I'm going to let you have a new leader, a new leader. But the Lord's portion is his people Jacob, his allotted heritage. So what does he say? He says, I'm going to 
I'm going to divide them up. And, and what does he do? He takes one couple, a man and a woman, and he says, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to keep them. Every, every, every other group of people is going to be divided up, and they're going to have some type of, uh, of spiritual leader over them, but I'm going to take one. And what does he do? He takes Abram and Sarai, who are barren. They can't have kids. And what does he say here in Genesis chapter 3? He says, hey, through the bloodline is going to come one that's going to squash the enemy. He's, gonna, he's going to put this rebellion, this overarching rebellion to rest. And then he says, all right, you don't want this. It's fine. Here are your leaders. I'll just take the couple that can't have kids. And why can't they have kids? Well, because they're past childbearing age. Supernatural. And he births in a nation and a people. The bloodline through which Jesus would come. But look here, if we go back to what we read at the beginning, Psalm 82. We find that in Psalm 82, this is a, an image of God venting. What does he say? It says, God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of of the gods, he holds judgment. And he asks this question, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? So God comes among these rulers that he put over their nations and he says, not only do the people refuse to listen to me, but you don't listen either. These spiritual beings, these lowercase g gods, these sons of God, now, what do they do? They judge unjustly. What is, he, what is he showing us inside of this text? That there is a consistent nature issue with anything that is not God. Selfishness, hate, greed, it creeps its way into every single being except for God. God is consistent the same yesterday, today, and forever. He says, give justice to the weak and the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. He says, you're not doing what you are supposed to be doing. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. And then he says, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. But because you have done this, because you have led unjustly, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. The psalmist concludes. Why? Because we want the judgment of God, not the judgment of these rebellious leaders that exist throughout the narrative. Now, I want to make another really quick you know, kind of cross-scriptural argument. This is what Daniel, this is where Daniel gets his theology. This idea that there are principalities that rule nations, right? When the angel of the Lord shows up, he says what? He says, the prince of Persia now has rule over this territory, but there is another that will come, right? Because these nations' borders are constantly shifting based on what's happening in the heavenly as they war among one another. And each of them will have their dominion and their time until it has been proven that they are all found to be wicked, all found to be evil. 
And so what is the rebellion? The rebellion is stepping out of their created role. They were put into position to be leaders, to lead men, and instead of doing it, what did they do? They crushed man. And man continued to say, no, 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 we don't want God. And so rebellion one, we find Adam being the center of this. Rebellion two, we find Noah at the center of it. And then rebellion three, we find Abram. I say Abram, his name is changed to Abraham in the midst of the covenant that he's in with God, but we are introduced to him as Abram. And how long between each? 1,600, I wrote it down, 1,656 years between one and two and 700 years between two and three. Now, rebellion four, right? In order for us to understand the dragon, I think that we have to understand the previous rebellions. We have to be able to understand how they happened, why they happened, and the results of them. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. So some type of war takes place in this fourth rebellion, and this is the rebellion that we don't know like what, what, at what point we're in, right? Are we, we're clearly before the full-on scale of it, but are we a hundred years, a thousand years, two years before we find ourselves in the midst of this specific battle? We don't know. We have signs. We'll be talking about those in the weeks to come, right? But there was no longer any place for them in heaven. So something shifts in the fourth rebellion. In the heavenly realm, right, in Job, what happens? The serpent shows up, the deceiver, he's with the sons of God, they're having conversation. That's not happening anymore. In the fourth rebellion, a war is going to take place and God's going to say, it's done. Your access is finished in the heavenly realm. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. What's John telling us? John's telling us right here, yes, there is a, a conclusion. There's going to be an end to the heavenly portion before the natural portion. The supernatural portion of that is going to be brought right here onto earth. And who is this, this, this leader of these sons of God? Well, he's got several different references, right? Because we don't know what that, what, that, what that son of God's name is. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. So what happens during this next rebellion, right? And then what happens during the fifth rebellion? We're given a glimpse into the fifth rebellion, the final rebellion that takes place at the end of this thousand-year period. To get to the answers of that, we'll be talking about it in two weeks. All right? Now, I want to say that there are many Elohim, but only one Elohim. These sons of God, these spiritual beings that we see throughout Scripture are there to give us an understanding that God has a whole nother realm 
that has a hierarchy inside of it, different positions, responsibilities, and that there has been a rebellion happening there. And I think that it started at the same time that rebellion began here on earth. And in the end, the day of the Lord, God is going to make himself known. And the difference between these previous rebellions and this rebellion right here, the fifth one, is that when the fifth rebellion hits, people will have a much clearer picture of what side they're picking. Clearer than they've ever had before. There'll be less debate. Jesus is ruling and reigning. He'll be there in their midst. And this last rebellion will be a group of spiritual beings and natural beings who say, I don't care that you're right in front of me. I don't want you. Next week, we're going to be talking about who this Elohim is for Mother's Day. Um, it'll be uh, something that will be very special. I hope that ladies will be a part of it. Um, my wife and the ladies have worked really hard for um, several months now uh, to make it a special day. We've got special gifts for the ladies. Uh, the, the message I hope will be encouraging. Uh, it will tie into this informationally, but hopefully won't be so, uh, so, so heavy uh, of content. We're going to be celebrating our moms next week. Let's go ahead and stand to our feet. And then when we come back, we're going to jump into the fourth rebellion and the Revelations chapter, Revelation chapter 12. So uh, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer as we uh, prepare to leave. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. I thank you that it is uh, present, um, filled with mystery uh, to draw us in, to encourage us, to challenge us, to change us, to hold us accountable. And Lord, as we look at all the heartache and the hardship that you as a father, as a creator, have carried the burden that you've walked out, um, Lord, I, I, just, I just pray that, that, um, that you would just very clearly speak to us, allow us that opportunity to walk in just, not just harmony with you, but Lord, in obedience the way that you have ordered it, the way that you have called us and created us to operate. I pray, Lord, that we would be effective at loving those around us and helping to lead them out of chaos and into the light. And Lord, be with us, strengthen us, encourage us in these times. Make yourself known in your mighty name. Amen. Listen, if you're sick in body, if you want to know Jesus as Lord of your life, our prayer ministry teams are available in the back. Listen, it's a supernatural word and it's a supernatural God that still is at work today. And so if there is something that you need, right, don't hesitate to go to the Lord and ask God to show up because he will show up in your life. Our prayer ministry teams are available. We love you guys. Uh, as always, we'll see you next Sunday. Go change your world.